We are in Psalm 18, and we are going to pick up a little bit back from where we ended last week as we go into the next few few verses of Psalm 18. We Just to remind you, we ended last week really with a uh, disturbing representation, uh, very extensive, in, when you consider the amount of verses committed to it, describing what it is like when God is angry, what his wrath entails, and what the exercise of that wrath on the earth involves. And it is, it is frightening, and it's supposed to be. Uh, when God starts to shake things and we start uh, to see the heavens uh, roll back, we see all these things, this is uh, what the psalmist describes. When God pours out his wrath on the earth, it is a destructive force unknown to man. We think we have the capacity to destroy uh, pretty well down in this atomic age, um, but it's nothing compared to what God is, can do, has done, and will do. And so we spent that time looking at that, and when we go to um, Revelation and we see the sixth seal broken open, one of the things that records there is that the kings of the earth, that is all the powerful people on earth, their response to the, out, the beginning of the outpouring of God's wrath is to run and hide. They want to call the rocks to fall on them. They want to die because of the frightening nature of what it's like to be alive while God's wrath is being poured out on the earth. And it says that they will see the sign of the Son of Man as he comes in the heavens and the clouds, and that will be their response of complete fear. These are not the weak, but the powerful of this age that are going to be uh, full of that much fear when they're confronted with an angry God. And we don't always portray God in this way, and then we appreciate so much the psalmist doing so, taking this time to not only about talk about God being the deliverer, but remember, the, the balance point is that if he's delivering you, he is judging the enemy that is causing your need for deliverance. And whether that enemy, we often think, well, that's sin and Satan, and yeah, they need to be judged, but it is also those who reject Jesus Christ. They will also be the recipients of God's wrath, and so they are the enemies of God. And so when we have a passage extensively like this, and rather than glossing it over, we need to take it to heart and recognize that God's wrath is a significant part of the end of this age, and we need to warn people of his wrath to come. And it also should motivate us that we need to be about the kingdom's business of communicating to people the necessity of repentance. For there is forgiveness, there is deliverance for them as well, um, from that wrath. And that is what our message is, is a message of deliverance. If we never teach God's wrath, we have nothing to deliver anyone from. If they are ignorant of it, don't believe it, um, just are never confronted with it, that their sin has a price, and that price is death, that price is the wrath of God, not just uh, the end of a, a shortened life, but of a, an eternity in judgment, uh, under the penalty of their sin, if they don't understand that, then they have nothing to be delivered from. Our message of deliverance just simply falls flat because they don't think they need anything to be delivered from. And so the concept of God's wrath and his um, judgment needs to be a very vital part of our 
representation of the message of God's word. And so it is inserted here. Now, um, not only apocalyptically towards the end times, but even today, that as nations turn against God, there should be an expectation of judgment. And we certainly see that uh, we are drawing near the time when the last empire is on the earth. And the, Daniel makes it very clear that that empire will be destroyed not by human hands. That is not another empire that we're worried about. It's not another world war um, that we're concerned about. Um, it is really a war between men and God. That is how this will conclude. And so when we read something like this of what God is capable of doing, uh, we don't really get too worried about skirmishes. We call them wars, skirmishes between nations, because really that's not what we're anticipating. We're really anticipating the end. It is unfortunate that so many times we say, well, if there's a war involving the Middle East, oh, this is Armageddon. No, it's not even close. These are skirmishes among men. Uh, we are waiting really for that great exercise of God's wrath to come, but it does already uh, play out. And so we come now to verse 16. And we want to, we already covered a little bit of most of this, but we, this will give us a run in. We're going to read through verse 36 this morning, beginning verse 16 to verse 36. God's word declares, He sent from above, He took me, He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He also brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. And now we're going to see why he delighted in him. Verse 20, the Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He has recompensed me, for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his judgments were before me, and I did not put away his statutes from me. I was also blameless before him, and I kept myself from iniquity. Therefore the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. With the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. And with the pure, you will show yourself pure. And with the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. For you will save the humble people, but will bring down the haughty looks. For you will light my lamp. The Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop. By my God I can leap over a wall. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. For who is God except the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. He makes me at my feet like the feet of deer and sets me on my high places. He teaches my hands to make war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have also given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand has held me up. Your gentleness has made me great. You enlarged my path under me so my feet did not slip. We come into this text and we having just concluded with an, a description of the outpouring of God's wrath, we come into the fact that there is a different future for those who trust in God. And so that different future is described for us in 16 through 19, that he is going to be brought up. Now, remember earlier in the chapter, prior to the wrath of God, we saw in verses 4 through 6 that the psalmist describes being very near to death. And we used him as a type, as a picture 
of Christ to come, that Christ actually endured death, descended into Sheol or into Hades or hell, and took captivity captive, the Bible says there. And so he experienced death, but God delivered him. He brought him out of that. And so God's wrath was satisfied, and that's going to be a very important part of this middle section of this psalm, is the satisfying of God's wrath. And so the wrath is very real. Um, the experience of near death for David and for Jesus of experiencing death, the separation from God, was real. And we find now that the deliverance, the, the um, process of overcoming these harsh enemies um, that the psalmist declares, they're too great for me, they're too powerful for me, but they're not too powerful for God. And of course, for David's enemies, you would think of, you know, certainly Saul, he names them at the beginning of this chapter, certainly the Philistines, and he had some very great enemies. Uh, it started off with men like Goliath, but it certainly continued, um, both externally and internally from among his own people sometimes. And so he had these enemies, um, but God gave him deliverance. Uh, but in terms of Jesus Christ, you may say he had enemies that were too great for him. Well, they overcame him. He was crucified by his enemies. They had the appearance of gaining the victory. They destroyed the Holy One. But remember that one of the precursor psalms to this one said that you will not let your Holy One see corruption. You won't leave him in that tomb. And so we come to verses 16 through 19, and we find that, in fact, God delivered not only David from his physical enemies, but we find that he delivered his son Jesus. And this is a repeated thing in every sermon, almost every sermon, in the book of Acts. You crucified him. You did that. God raised him from the dead. That God granted the victory. Jesus didn't raise himself from the dead. God gave him the victory over those wicked enemies of sin and death. God gave him that victory over all of that. And so when he talks about this here in the psalm, that he sent from above and he took me and drew me out of many waters and delivered me from my strong enemy from those who hated me. We see the application of Jesus Christ very clearly, um, but what bothers us is when it says that they were too strong for me. Well, Jesus Christ succumbed. He surrendered. He gave up his spirit. Um, and we sometimes forget that Jesus Christ was fully human that these forces that were raged against him were too strong. They overwhelmed him, and thus he puts himself into his Father's hand. He puts himself, in whether being Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. Um, he says that with the beginning word, nevertheless, which means that's not really what I want. I would like to be delivered from my enemies, but if I'm being put in their hands for a purpose, I'm going to trust in you. And then on the cross, he says a similar thing. Into your hands I commend my spirit. We talked about that last week. We now come to the deliverance, the power of the resurrection, where these enemies who seem to have gained the victory over Jesus and showed their strength of this age um, were confronted then with the power of God to deliver. And that power is the power of the resurrection that is described as being uh, a support that's being brought me out into a broad place. He drew me out. He sent. He took me out of all of that. And because, why? Well, because he 
delighted in me. And this is where we want to pick up today. What was it, both in David's life, historical reality, that God kept his attention on him, and then in Jesus Christ, that we rely on so significantly? When we read through these next handful of verses, hopefully we realize that David could not have possibly lived up to this sinlessness that he claims. Um, and again, uh, by divine inspiration, he is really speaking of another. He recognizes this is not just hyperbole. He's not just using the extreme to represent himself, nor is he comparing himself to others. Certainly Saul, right, at the cave said, David, you are more righteous than I. And this is how many people measure righteousness, right? Am I more righteous than them? And we kind of have a scale, right, where we say, well, there's these really, really wicked people. I'm better than them. You know, they do nasty things. And then there's people that I'm just slightly better than. Um, and then there might be a few that are better than me. I, I always marvel that most of us have ourselves in the upper 10, 20% of humanity in comparison. Um, but the statements being made here in this psalm are of absolute righteousness and obedience. Certainly, we know that that wasn't true of David. We know that he struggled. We know that he sinned against God uh, on several occasions. But the tenor of his life, the desire of his heart, was always after the Lord. Did his flesh get in the way sometimes? Absolutely. Did he do foolish things sometimes? Yes, even in his old age, yes. <laughs> in fact, some of his biggest sins were when he was old, not when he was young. And so the idea that somehow we're going to get too old to sin and I'm going to get so mature in my relationship with God that sin is going to be, uh, and wisdom is going to just be, the, the sin is going to be gone and wisdom is going to be the norm um, is foolishness. Because David committed some of his worst acts. He's numbering the people. That was when he was older, not when he was young. And so he trusts in the Lord, but he says, well, what is it that gains God's attention? It is, and we know this from really before David was even anointed. What did God say? I want a man whose heart is for me, who wants to follow me with all his heart. Will his flesh, his life, his own interest get in the way of that occasionally? Yes, he will fail. But every time David fails, what do we find him doing? Repenting, which is what the Bible tells us to do, right? When we fail, what does he say? Confess, confess your sin. He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And he's going to talk about the cleanliness of his heart. You might say, well, was David's heart always clean? Well, not in the sense of perfect humanity, not like Jesus Christ, but it was cleansed on a regular basis because I am convinced from the history we have that David never wanted to leave God's favor, never wanted to disobey God's word, and when he did, always asked for cleansing. And he keeps, in those famous statements, creating me a clean heart, O God, were spoken by David. He wanted that renewed cleansing that can only come from the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, which he is going to, again, relate to us the mercy aspect here in these verses. So as you pick up with me in verse 20, he's recounting that the Lord has certainly rewarded me. 
And when we project this onto Jesus Christ, we have no problems with these verses at all, do we? In fact, we begin to understand. God wants someone who wants to pursue him with all his heart. I want a man after my own heart. That is, he is pursuing the heart of God. That is the measure of God's ear. You want God's ear to be listening and attentive. You want God's attention. You want God's reward. You want his deliverance. Then you need to pursue with your heart the heart of God. Not necessarily achieve self-righteous status of sinlessness, but a desire of your heart to pursue the heart of God. Now remember, the heart is not the center of your feelings, it's the center of your will. So when Jesus Christ prays, not my will, he's saying not what my heart wants, my heart wants what is your will, what your heart is. Are you going to pursue the heart of God? Are you after God's own heart? And this is the description God gave of David. And this should be the description of every follower of Jesus Christ. Every believer should have that. We want our hearts transformed. We surrender it in the, in the uh, act of receiving salvation. It should remain surrendered the balance of our days. That Our communication to God is not my will, but yours be done in my life, and that should be done every day. Whether you do it at the beginning of the day, before you head to bed, uh, whether you do it in the middle of the day when you're getting up out of your bed, uh, or whether you want to do it later in the day when you're getting ready for supper, do it sometime regularly to commit your way to God's way. We all want to be rewarded. We all want to be delivered. We all want to be lifted up. But we don't always understand the qualification for that. Do I have a heart that's pursuing God's heart day by day, hour by hour? Well, let's look at the claim here. The claim here in verse 20 and following is that the reward of God is in accordance with, uh, and that's going to come up several times, that is that it's a response. So if you're getting little reward, the, the question isn't, is God good? The question is, are you any good? <laughs> but we don't do that. Oh, God isn't making my life comfortable enough. You live in one of the richest countries in the world. You have all the comforts of the world brought to you. I don't know how any American could say they aren't comfortable enough. And that's really our complaint. Because we have food, shelter, we just want more. Um, but some of the most discontented people are Americans, are the rich. And so we come to God and we say, well, you're not rewarding me enough and you're not good. You're not generous. You're and we make all these claims against God when what we should be doing is evaluating, well, am I not pursuing him? That he can't bless me because I won't pursue him. I won't chase after the heart of God and make that my concern of life. Uh, maybe I'm just pursuing the things of this life too much. So there is that word according. Uh, there, there's, this is a just measure. That is, your reward is measured out by your righteousness. So when we come to the righteousness of Christ, did he receive his just reward? That is, did God respond to his obedience and righteousness in his life? And the answer is yes. This is how we gain the victory. I come to this passage and I fail. 
I fail, 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 fail. I look at my righteousness. I look at the cleanness of my hands. Um, I have, am I keeping the ways of the Lord? Have I never departed from God uh, in my heart, in my life? Um, are, do I keep his judgments before me? Um, do I never forget his laws, his statutes? Um, am I blameless? Wow. Not before men, but before God. Am I blameless? I have nothing that I can be blamed. Um, have I kept? I, I go through as I say, well, this doesn't really, I can't live up to this. My heart would love to keep, live up to that, but I have this other thing that I'm carrying around called my body. Uh, and it's weak, and it's made out of dirt. I'm looking forward to the new one one day. Um, and I still have to surrender myself even in that one to Christ I'm convinced of. And so we come to this list and we recognize, I can't live up to this, therefore I am undeserving of God's reward, of God's deliverance, of God's blessing, and you would be accurate in that. And that's why we use an intermediary a substitute. And that substitute is Jesus Christ who lived up to this perfectly. And so as you go down through this and you apply this to Christ and, and that, well, I can't live up to this standard, but someone has on my behalf and God has given him the full victory that's described here by David over all of his enemies and he's done it not just for himself, but for all who would trust in him. And we're going to see that played into the next few verses but we want to not move too quickly away from the necessity of righteousness. Because this is the only way to satiate God's wrath. We just got down with a bunch of verses about the wrath of God being poured out. How do we appease God's wrath? Well, it's not so different from when we encounter justified wrath on earth believe it or not. When your dad gets mad at you because you've done something naughty, how do you appease his wrath? We all know how to do that, don't we? Or maybe we don't. Okay? Do we sit there and say, dad shouldn't get so mad? Well, most of the time we try to do that or we try to justify ourselves. I didn't do it that bad. I didn't. No, we, that's not going to make him less angry. Does that ever work? It's never worked on me. Maybe it worked on other dads. Should have preached this on Father's Day, I guess. Um, it doesn't work on me. The only thing that works on me is when that child admits I was wrong, I'm sorry, and breaks it down and shows genuine repentance and then every effort to make it right. That's how you appease. That's the right response self-defense, attack, these kinds of things, they don't appease wrath, they increase it. But yet this is exactly how people approach God. And then they wonder why God is more angry at them. Because instead of acknowledging your sin, you excuse your sin and make all the problem on God's side, right? My sin I can tolerate. God's righteousness I want to attack. Well, he is righteous in his anger. And I hear it. I hear it from from the world, from philosophers of this world, when I listen to them, is, oh, how can a loving God allow this? And I'm like, because he's an angry dad. 
Love and anger are not mutually exclusive. And every father knows it. I can love a kid and be furious at them at the exact same time because they're doing wrong. And the solution to that is to do, is to first of all repent and, and have godly sorrow and then to do what is right. Well, Pastor, you just said we can't really do all what is right. No. And so that's why we come to God and we say, I want to shelter myself under this shield. And that shield is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That substitute. So that when you look upon me and my sin, at, that you have separated my sin from me, you have placed it on your son there on the cross when he cried out, when darkness uh, covered the earth, and we find that that's where my sin lies. And, oh Lord, I confess it freely before you, and I know that I cannot undo it, and I cannot do good enough to surpass the, the cost of evil, but Christ has done it for me. And I come before Him, and that's why there's no mistaking that the very next verse, after describing what a truly righteous life is about, is you are merciful. You are a merciful God. And mercy is about withholding the judgment we deserve. That when we are merciful, He will show mercy to us. And that's the idea of recognizing evil versus good, choosing good, hating our own evil, and coming to God with humility. And that's going to be at the end of this portion when he talks about God is for the humble and He's against the proud. that this is our response. This is how we associate with Christ, is we not just claim His name and His righteousness, um, but we also want to model it in our life. That is, now that I have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, I want to walk by faith in that cleansed state. I want to be holy as He has made me holy. I don't want to add to that. Paul talks about this in Romans. He says, um, you know, grace is sufficient for my sins, so should I sin more that I get more grace? No! Emphatically no! God forbid that you do that. That would be hideous. Be like the spoiled child who goes and runs up debt and debt and debt and dad keeps paying it off instead of being thankful and stop doing it, they just do more of it. We would despise that child as being an ingrate, spoiled, ruined, and deserving of judgment. So we recognize that we depend upon Jesus Christ's righteousness and then an expectation that if our hands have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, that we now use them for the Father's glory. And as He began there, we're going to come to hands quite frequently uh, in this portion, this central portion, um, because not only are your hands going to have to be clean, since they're not clean, you're going to need the mercy of God to give, make them clean, keep them clean. So you want clean hands. Then you're going to be strengthened hands a little bit later. So hands become very important in this central portion uh, to describe your relationship with God. How are your hands in front of God? Put them out there. What do they look like? You want to commune at the table of God's fellowship? Well, you don't come to the table with dirty hands. 
What do they look like? He says, according to the cleanness of my hands. And then later on, he gets to verse 24. And again, he repeats that same statement, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. That God is looking upon what you're doing. Not just what you're saying, not just what you're believing, but the hands represent what you are doing. There should be evidence in our life that we are doing good. And we have that recorded for us in God's Word. What kind of things are good things? Are you doing the works of your Father? Well, you are. The question is, who's your Father, right? That was what Jesus encountered with his disciples, uh, his followers in John. He says, do you do the works of your Father? Just sadly, your Father is the devil. And you do his work instead of God's work. Are your hands clean in God's sight? Well, when they're not, we need his mercy. And so let's now look upon God. So we, we've looked at the necessity to, if you want to appease God's wrath, you're going to have to do it through righteousness, not by contempt or attack or self-defense. I'm not going to uh, rationalize my sin away and try to make it not sin, redefine it. And our world is really good about redefining sin into something not sin, aren't they? Oh, that's not sin, that's a choice. It is a, yes, sin is a choice. I don't know why you think it's different. Um, No, it's how I was born. It's in my genes. I can't help it. Well, sin is in your flesh. They're actually correct in that, but you can help it. That's where they're incorrect. By turning to God. He has offered a way of escape. And so look at how God reacts. Is he always angry? Well, with sin he is. How do we appease that? How do we turn that anger with which he judges into compassion with which he delivers? And we find it here listed for us in verse 25 and following. With the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. With the pure, you will show yourself pure. Um, and let's jump now to verse 27. We're going to get to the devious here in a little bit. For you will save the humble people. So the response is not to react with accusation against God. The response is not that we uh, claim that we're not sinners when we are sinners. The response is to humble ourselves before him, seek out his mercy. And we even see this in our Lord's Prayer, right? What does he say? Forgive us our debts in accordance with as we forgive those who trespass, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That we understand the necessity of the forgiveness model that we are implementing in our life. We are not just seeking out selfishly, but that we recognize that we are all in need of that, and I want to exercise that in my own life in accordance with what I expect from God. We often expect things from God we are unwilling to give to others. And that is tragic, that somehow we can um, continue in sin and in uh, bitterness uh, and yet expect God not to remember our sins when we remember everyone else's sin. And so we want God to look upon us with mercy. We want God to look upon us in a blameless way without blaming us, judging us. We want God's purity in our life. We want Him to be pure in His relation with us 
and we want him to save us, what does it require? Well, again, we have a list of qualifications, right? Well, we, want, we don't want him to look too close at us because <laughs> we won't qualify for any of those things. So we are asking, look unto Jesus, your son, who is all those things. Jesus is the merciful one. Jesus is the pure one. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the blameless man. Jesus is all of these things. And therefore, I want to hide myself. I want to put myself in the, under the umbrella of Jesus' righteousness. We call it imputed righteousness. We want the righteousness of God imputed or credited to our account, even though we didn't earn it. And then in that condition now, we seek God's mercy, we seek God's purity, we seek God's blamelessness, that we are not guilty anymore. That's justification, is that not blameless anymore, or not, not to be blamed. We are blameless in His sight. And that's salvation. And so, again, we find this reiteration. God responds. Instead of with wrath, He responds with all these good things. When we hide ourselves in the righteousness of Christ, and when we exercise that righteousness in our own lives. That we need to walk in the light as He is in the light. That it should be the evidence of our faith and our trust in Him, that we're pursuing His heart with all of our heart. Excellent description of the substitutionary righteousness in order to appease the wrath of God and gain salvation. Now we have the next problem to be resolved. Pastor, I'm, I just can't do it. And you're right. You can't be good enough, even as a believer, to claim heaven, to claim salvation, to claim God's best. You're going to keep doing stuff uh, if you do it in your own strength, you're going to miserably fail. And that's not only not sinning, um, that's sins of commission. That is, I, I, I can't stop doing these things that I know God hates. But it's also, if you try to do the things you know God's love, but do it in your own strength, you're going to fail there too. You're going to fail. You say, well, I know God wants me in his word, I know he wants me to know his law and to live that. I know he wants me to serve him and, and to serve uh, the body of saints. I know he wants me to be a light in dark places and salt in a bland world. And I know he wants me to be these rays of hope. And I fail at that. Well, if you're trying to do it by your own strength and in your own wisdom, you will always fail in that. If you go to the world and to resolve the problems of life, you're going to fail because the world doesn't have the truth. They don't know the way. And so as we take this to heart, we say, okay, I'm going to pursue God's heart. I am going to dwell in his righteousness. Can I now walk in the steps of Jesus? Let's find out. In verse 28, we have lots of imagery here in the balance of this chapter we want to look at. For you will light my lamp. The Lord, my God, will enlighten my darkness. That is spectacular. You are children of light. You don't have to light your own lamp. 
God says, he will light your lamp. When Jesus says, you know, when you have a, a lamp, you don't hide it under a bushel, right? You put it on a hill. Well, you have to have the lamp lit before it's any good, right? It doesn't matter if it's a, if it's a put out lamp, it doesn't matter where it sits. Okay, if you're just a smoldering wick because you used to be on fire for God and now there's just a little, you know, when you blow out a candle, there's a little glow on the end of the wick. And you wonder, can it relight if I do something without a match? Um, and that's where a lot of Christians, I think, are. They're kind of out of, out of it. And the Bible says you've quenched the Holy Spirit. You've put out the flame. You know, don't do that. But neither can you light your own lamp. Nor should you be trying. God says, he'll light your lamp. What should we be doing? We should be trusting in him with all of our heart, pursuing the heart of God. And God says, I'll light your lamp. And that lamp isn't just for others to see, but it's for yourself. The Lord enlightened my darkness. Just not the darkness of the world, but my own darkness. Most of what prohibits us from really getting into God's word is our own darkness. We love our life the way it is, and we don't want it to be interrupted by truth of God's word that demands conformity. I have to change things in my life if I really want to live this. And so it is our own darkness that keeps us from walking in the light. We don't, you might say, I don't understand it. Well, that's, that's not a claim against your intelligence, not a claim against this book. It's a claim against God. And the question I ask you is, are you trusting in yourself or in Holy Spirit? Because he is the illuminator. And God says, I will lighten your life. If you have a desire of your heart to pursue God's heart, God says, I will light your lamp. And he will illuminate your darkness first. Before he can be the light on the hill for everyone's darkness to be affected, he's got to illuminate your darkness first. That we begin to say, man, there's things in my life that aren't in conformity with God's word. I need to change that. And if we don't respond to that light, how can we expect God to work in us elsewhere? And so the first thing we find is that God's going to light your life. He's going to illuminate your darkness. And so it begins there. Are you illuminated to God's word? This is where it begins. You have faith. You want to pursue God. You've put yourself on the umbrella of his righteousness. Now, you want to pursue God? You're going to have to do it according to truth. What is truth? God's word is truth. How do I understand God's word? Well, you got to get yourself in there and ask God. I'm pretty sure God says, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask with faith and he'll receive. God does not withhold wisdom. It's us who keep ourselves in darkness because we don't want to obey wisdom. We don't want to really let it change our life. Oh man, I got to live differently. That's going to be weird. Kind of un-American. It's not how I was raised. Well, you're right. You were raised in your parents' darkness. And they were raised in their parents' darkness. All the way back to a guy named Adam. 
We have our own darkness. It needs to be illuminated. Keep going. Verse 29, For by you I can run against a troop. By my God I can leap over a wall. And again, we can talk about this literally. Um, we're talking about where your feet are going, right? So we're going to work our way through some aspects of your life. Um, the strength to walk by faith is what I want to point out. Um, for David as a soldier, he needed to pursue an enemy. Um, and God gave him the strength to get victory over his enemies. And so he can march um, against a troop, he says here, that is, uh, I can run with one or against one. Um, I can leap over a wall. Um, I can pursue that. I can engage my enemy victoriously by the strength of God. In the Sunday school this morning, you learned about um, Asaphel, right? The really fast guy. There's three brothers, the fast one, right? Uh, I'm pretty sure that guy could leap over a wall. He had physical prowess in his feet. He's not the only one in Scripture or several like that. Um, the last one we visited that had really quick feet um, was a guy named Philip, right? He could catch up with chariots, again, with God's help. The idea here is the walk of faith, um, where your feet will go. Even in the passage in Ephesians 6, talks about, are your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace? That as we pursue things, with our heart, God says, I'll strengthen you to go up against uh, any barrier. You've got these barriers, you've got these enemies that are keeping you from walking the walk of faith. God says, I'll help you jump right over them. If you trust me. If you trust me, there's no enemy too big, there's no barrier too large that you can't get over it if you just trust God. You've been illuminated into his truth, trust him, and he will let you overcome those barriers. Now, I was in, when I was in high school and college, I was a hurdler. And so my life was in athletics was nothing but barriers. Every race I ran pretty much, when I got to open races, like they put me in uh, 4x4s and 4x100s, relay tees, I thought, this is kind of cool. You get to run and there's nothing in your way. <laughs> because almost every race I ran, I had barriers in front of me. And back then, there were three levels. There was low hurdles, high hurdles, and intermediate hurdles. They've gotten rid of the low hurdles, the 220 lows. Um, but whether they're small, medium, or large, every race I had barriers. And God says, I'm going to give you the strength to overcome those. There are going to be barriers to the Christian life that you're going to confront. You can try to plow through them yourself, but you're just going to get injured and slow down. God says, I will strengthen you if you trust in me and follow the light of my word, I will give you the strength to walk that walk of faith, even against the obstacles that you're going to encounter. You will encounter obstacles. You'll encounter people, um, sometimes even righteous people, godly people, say, oh, you can't do that, it's too hard. Um, I tried and it, you can't do it. Um, you're going to encounter people like that. We're going to make mountains out of molehills of obstacles in your life or your Christian walk. Um, and maybe it's because they didn't let the light penetrate their darkness quite enough to trust in God that I can overcome these obstacles. 
And I've had to deal with this in ministry in my own life and in those that have come to me for counsel. I'm like, yeah, you have these obstacles, but if you trust God, he can overcome, help you overcome those. And I'm not talking about, you know, yeah, you can go to lawyers. They'll tell you how the world thinks you should overcome them. Uh, you can go to all these other people. You can go to your psychologists, and they can tell you how to do that. Uh, uh, you can go to your educators, and they'll tell you how you think. But ultimately, do you trust God? Because God will strengthen your feet to overcome those obstacles and to pursue and take down those enemies. He enlightens us. He empowers us to overcome the obstacles of the Christian life. And then verse 30, he has a perfect way. It's a pro- the word of the Lord is proven, so that's, this is the A-B-B-A portion of these three verses. Um, the lamp is the perfect way. The run in darkness is a proven, the word is proven. The way is perfect, and the way is what you run. And the word is the light in your darkness is proven. It's sure. It's true. And then finally, he is a shield to all who trust in him. So I'm trusting in the Lord. I need his light in my darkness so I know how I should go. Then again, you saw that in Sunday school this morning again with the adults where David says, you know, should I go there? God says, yeah, go. Isn't that nice to be able to go where you know God wants you to go? Well, that's the light. His ways, his, his uh, word is proven. It's true. It's dependable. It will send you in a way that without the strength to go that way, no, his way is perfect. He will not direct, misdirect you. Belong there, you will have enemies. And it says he's a shield to you. So while you're going in the way of the light that God's shown you, and you're going in his strength, he says, I will be a shield to you. Will you have enemies while you're on the way of righteousness of Jesus Christ? Yes. There will be people who hate the fact that you're walking that way. There will be people who will try to disrupt you from walking that way. There will be people there who will try to trip you up walking that way. There will be people there that want to bring, pull you back into the darkness and tell you you don't have time to spend in God's word. They want to keep that light out of your life. There will be all of these, but if we trust in God, it says, I will be the shield for you while you're doing all this. So when we engage in this spiritual warfare, we recognize not that we are going to be walking down a corridor where there is no enemies and no obstacles, and that this is the evidence of God's mercy. No, it is the fact that God will empower us to overcome the enemy and those obstacles and to protect us while we're doing it. So we're not protecting our backside. There is no plan B, although most all of my plans, I say, when people ask me, I say, well, that's plan B. And you guys, hopefully, have you guys heard me say that? I know my family has. That's plan B. And he said, well, that's the first plan I've heard. I said, because plan A is always that Jesus comes out to do any of it. That's plan A every day in my life. That's plan A for every sermon. Plan A is I don't have to preach it. That's what I'm praying really hard for tonight. Okay? That's my plan A. <laughs> plan B was that I have everything ready, uh, and plan B is off the table um, at this point, I think, unless I have a really productive afternoon. And plan C now, well, God says, 
I'll protect you. I'll be the shield if you go according to my plan. You follow my path. In my strength, I'll protect you. There will be opposition. And so let's look at who you're trusting in. We visited God in his anger. We've seen how to tap his mercy. Now let's talk about a little bit of who God is and why he can do so much for us if we let his light into our darkness, if we pursue him in his strength and not our own and let him protect us rather than us protect ourselves with plan B's and C's behind us. Verse 31, who is God except the Lord and who is a rock except our God is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. Again, we're going to go back to these themes, back and forth. Uh, He makes my feet like the deer and sets me on high places, teaches my hands to make war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand has held me up. Your gentleness has made me great. You enlarged my path under me so my feet did not slip. And with this, we'll conclude this morning that God is God. There is none like him. When God invites your trust, he's not a weak and absent and empty God. That's, he didn't, you, didn't, you didn't have to fashion him out of a rock or a stone or go anything like that. He, he doesn't need that. He doesn't need a temple to live in. For he created all the earth, the Bible tells us. Remember, Paul reminds the Athenians of that. You know, God doesn't need that. Solomon reminded the people of Israel of that. You know, the whole earth isn't big enough. This is the God we're talking about. There is no other God. So when he invites you to trust in him to avoid his wrath, the fact that he is God makes his wrath frightening. The fact that he is God is that he can be trusted. And there is contentment. There is uh, solid. I can stand on that. I can be immovable because there's no God other than God. Who is like him? I don't have to attack the Muslim. I don't have to attack the Hindu. I don't have to attack anyone. I just have to stand for truth. They, (laughs) and this is what Christians I don't think comprehend, is they are so deeply threatened by a truth because it exposes their error that they want to attack it. In our world around us, with agnosticism, which is characterizes our environment, um, atheistic agnosticism, um, wants to attack truth. Even the very truth of fundamental things that you say, why are we questioning what a woman is or what a man is? Um, well, because we want to attack truth because we recognize that if I acknowledge truth, absolute truth, I don't have any. Now I'm in a threatened position. But when we come to God and we say, well, God is truth and I'm going to have him strengthen my feet, I'm going to have him set my path. These are the two things, my walk and my path and then my hands. So I'm going to walk this way because I believe this because it's true. I have this light of truth that God has provided And there's no one else, there's no other source like him that has pure truth. Remember one of the psalms presaging this psalm, we talked about his his 
Truth has been purified seven times. It's perfect. And that's overwhelming to us, that kind of truth. Because the world is telling you there is no truth. It's all gray. Or, worse than this, you can produce your own truth. What a bunch of gobbledygook that is. And so, when we represent the truth, it is going to be opposed by the enemy, but we have no reason to fight, um, but we are strengthened in standing. And that's why he says this is a rock. And we're going to walk the Christian life. We're going to do Christian things with our hands. We're going to engage ourselves in the spiritual warfare. But fundamentally, our feet in walking the walk are going to walk on the rock. We're going to stay on the truth and not waver. And so he makes my way perfect that my feet are like the feet of deer, sets me on high places. And the idea here is that I can go what looks like a very treacherous path, but I can do it with confidence. I can go on scary paths with confidence. Uh, When we were up in um, Glacier Park in Montana, uh, we went on one of those hikes down to one of the glacier lakes. And as you go down through there, there's these these goats on the hillside, and you're like, I can't believe these goats are just walking around that hillside. It's like, how can they not be falling down? You watch them, they just walk around, they jump. They're on a hillside. I mean, not just a little slope. I mean, we're talking cliffs. And you're like, these goats are up there. (laughs) How are they not falling down? Um, But that's how the world should look at you. When we walk in the truth, trusting in God to direct our path, it says, you'll establish my feet on high places. And it will look treacherous to the world. It'll look scary, dangerous. It'll look like there's no way you can walk in righteousness. You can't live this Bible in these days. That's what they'll tell you. You can't walk according to this truth these days. It won't. You can't survive. And I've heard financial counselors tell people, you can't survive if you give the way the Bible tells you to give. And I've heard legal advisors say, you can't survive if you do things the way the Bible tells you to do. I've heard marriage counselors say, you, your marriage can't survive if you do things the way the Bible says to do it. I've heard parent classes basically say, I've taken a lot of them, or led by the state. You can't be a successful parent if you do what the Bible tells you to do as a parent. They, they will continually tell you because to them, they're looking at a cliff and they just see treacherousness and they just see impossibility. But because I trust in the one God, he can set my feet in, in those high places safely. And I can just go there. You can go there if you trust in the Lord. Again, let him light up your darkness of your heart that doesn't believe that God is really God. And he can do these things. He really can. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Test him out. Try it. And then we come back to the arms, to the hands. He teaches your hands to make war. And not just with a little bit of strength. He says enough to bend a bow of bronze. (laughs) Wow. I don't know if they've ever made bows of bronze, but this guy can bend them. Again, 
just as the feet are describing impossible things to us, he comes to an impossible level of strength. Why is it impossible? Because it's not of human derivative. It is from God, not from man, not from sinking deep inside yourself and bring it forth. No, it is from going outside of myself to Jesus, to God, to Jesus Christ and saying, I want to do it by the power of the Spirit of God within me, not by my own wisdom, not by my own strength, not by my own capacities at all. I want to do it by God so that he receives the glory. And so I recognize my weaknesses, but what does Paul say? In my weaknesses, he is made strong. So he likes to use where you're weak. Let that light light up your darkness and stop being afraid of doing things that you know you're weak at. Because that's probably where God will use you more and better. And so again, another impossibility. But can God's hand teach you to engage in this spiritual warfare? Yes. Can you have victory? Yes. But not if you trust in yourself. You have to trust in the Lord. There is no God except the Lord. There is no rock except our God. You are not a rock. You're barely a pebble. And they just hurt when you walk on them. One pebble at a time, right? You want to walk in the rock, rock of Jesus Christ. And so he's going to give you the strength. And then he says in verse 35 and 36, we're going to finish this up. You have also given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand has held me up. Your gentleness made me great. You enlarged my path under me so my feet did not slip. You can trust God. It begins by making sure that you've appeased his wrath. And you can't do it by your own righteousness, so you have to have the substitutionary righteousness of Jesus Christ do that for you. Once you have appeased his wrath, now walk in his way. But you can't do that by yourself either. You're going to do that by his strength, by his direction, by his light in his path. And that, my friends, is salvation. And God says, you will never slip. And in fact, he says, you'll make me great. You're going to hold me up. You're going to enlarge my path under me. That means that you're going to give me an easier path to walk. And you're going to protect me all the way along. This is the promise of God if we trust him. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you again for your word and for the opportunity to look into it and that you have taken steps that we might appease your wrath through your son, Jesus Christ, that, we, that he might appease it for us, I should say. Lord, we thank you for your love for us, for your mercy. We are deserving of that frightening act of your wrath. Lord, help us to not only live under the umbrella of his righteousness, but to walk in the path of his light, strengthened by your spirit, that you might receive the glory, that our salvation might be well understood, known not only to ourselves, but to those around us, that they might pursue you, even as we seek to pursue you. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.